the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we've got quite a lineup. We're going to talk with Dr. Michelle Watson Canfield. She's the host of The Father Whisperer, heard right here on KPDQ. And her latest book, Let's Talk, Conversation Starters for Dads and Daughters, will be the subject of our conversation, among other things. We'll also hear from Dr. Kevin Pham. He's a policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk, uh, talk about what we actually know about hydroxychloroquine and what we don't know, trying to put that all into perspective. And we'll speak with Hans von Spakovsky. He's an authority on a wide range of issues. Today, we're going to talk with him about all male voting uh, and why some argue it poses a grave danger to the next election and others say, oh, there's nothing um, there's nothing to see here. We'll talk with him about that also in the second hour of today's program. Taking a look at some of the day's headlines, Hurricane Isaias uh, made landfall near Ocean Island Beach in North Carolina to uh, Monday night as it strengthened into a Category 1 hurricane, according to the National Hurricane Center. The storm made landfall at about 1110 last night with maximum sustained winds of 85 miles per hour. The NHC warned Oceanside residents to brace for storm surges of up to five feet and up to eight inches of rain as it traveled up the coast. The storm now has a maximum sustained winds of 70 miles per hour. All those rains could produce flash flooding across portions of the eastern Carolinas and mid-Atlantic, and even in the northeast, according to Daniel Brown, senior hurricane specialist at the NHC. They said that strong winds and heavy rainfall are likely in those areas during the day on Tuesday. And other related developments... The uh, now downgraded hurricane spurred New York City to deploy temporary flood barriers. de Blasio says the city's not taking any chances. And FEMA's chief uh, warns that the East Coast residents are to prepare for Hurricane Isaias to heed the state and local authorities as uh, they ride it out. And Mayor Jacob Fry, the Minneapolis Democrat who was harshly criticized over his handling of the George Floyd riots in June on Monday, seemed to uh, place much of the blame on Governor Tim Walz, another Democrat, for failing to act quickly on early requests from the city for state intervention, according to a new report. And Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, he's seeking to highlight the role Antifa and like-minded groups are playing in riots all across the country and will convene a Senate hearing on Tuesday on the issue while alleging radical left-wing groups are engaging in organized terror attacks designed to tear down government institutions. Across the country, he says, we're seeing horrific violence. We're seeing our country torn apart. Violent anarchists and Marxists are exploiting protests to transform them into riots and direct assaults on the lives and safety of their fellow Americans. On Tuesday, uh, Mr. Cruz is going to chair a hearing of the Judiciary Committee's Subcommittee on the Constitution to investigate groups such as Antifa, which, while active for years, have recently escalated their presence in the wake of George Floyd's death in police custody. The hearing is called The Right of the People Peaceably to Assemble, Protecting Speech by Stopping Anarchist Violence. 
Speakers will include Acting Deputy Homeland uh, Security Secretary Ken Cuccinelli, journalist Andy No, and law professor Jonathan Turley. It comes after two months of protests and violent riots hit downtown Portland and elsewhere. The rioters have attacked the Hatfield Courthouse and clashed with federal law enforcement, protecting it. Now, in other news, uh, Vice President Pence has hit back at Andrew Cuomo in defense of uh, Fed's pandemic response, saying New York governor's poor decisions cost lives. And pro-life activists accuse the D.C. of First Amendment violation after their arrest for chalking a pro-life slogan. We'll tell you more about that later. And MSNBC producer has resigned from the network with scathing letters saying they block diversity of thought and amplify fringe voices. And a Portland man, 18, has been charged with assaulting a U.S. marshal during the courthouse protest. Well, Nike is eyeing 500 layoffs since their Oregon headquarters, and President Trump is okay with Microsoft buying TikTok. He says the app will close September 15 if no acquisition is made. And Twitter is warning of massive fines over alleged misuse of personal information. I suppose that's supposed to be by others rather than by Twitter itself. More Democrats are talking about keeping Biden out of the debates, although he has said he intends to debate three times. The debates have never made sense as a a test for presidential leadership, says one critic. In fact, one could argue that they reward precisely the opposite of what we want in a president. When we were serious about the presidency, we wanted intelligence, thoughtfulness, knowledge, empathy, and to be sure, likability. It should also go without saying dignity. Yet, Debates play an outsized role in the campaigns and weigh more heavily on the verdict than their true value deserves. That's an op-ed in New York arguing that Joe Biden should really opt out of debates. From the Wall Street Journal, they write, what a terrible year to make this argument. The pandemic has put the usual political rallies on hold, so fewer voters will see the candidates in the flesh. The conventions will be largely online. Press aides will shape the news coverage by picking friendly interviewers. Mr. Biden hasn't done any Sunday shows since COVID. Fox News' Chris Wallace recently said, adding that we all ask every day, every week. The debates will be a rare chance for a third party to push Mr. Biden on his plans for tax increases and a Green New Deal. A day earlier, former Clinton White House Press Secretary Joe Lockhart, he said he believes Trump can't win but gives Biden this advice. In bold, whatever you do, don't debate Trump. End quote. Well, CNN's chief media correspondent is calling this uh, concept a right-wing media tempest. Huh. And Byron York says another pro-Biden voice advocates scrapping this year's presidential debates. Meanwhile, Hugh Hewitt looked at the impressive record of uh, the president um, that he can run on and why debates from his vantage point would be in the president's uh, to the president's advantage. Well, Seattle protesters are targeting the chief of police there who's asking the city council to stand up for what's right after hundreds showed up in her front yard. And as the mail-in ballot mess continues, New York is still counting votes from June 23rd, their primary. Tom Cotton says a general election could have five times as many ballots. At this pace, New York will be counting votes seven months after the November election. And Dems want this nationwide? Question mark. A look at the potential election nightmare. That will be the subject of my conversation with Hans von Spakovsky later in the second hour of today's program. Ari Fleischer says this, as a survivor of the 2000 recount, I do not want anyone to go through what happened to George Bush or Al Gore. Today, however... Um, animosity to President Trump is so high that a close election will test our nation's divisions in dangerous ways that go way beyond what was experienced in 2000, a comparatively calm and respectful year in politics. 
The threat on November 3rd is not from a delayed election. The threat is not because uh, the election will be rigged or, or for that matter, he argues, um, marked by fraud. The threat is from a close election whose outcome is in doubt. Our nation survived close elections before, but a surge in mail-in voting will make 2000 different. It will be a unique year by any measure. And producer leaving MSNBC had a blistering letter to leave behind. Ariana Picari says this cancer stokes national division, even in the middle of a civil rights crisis. The model blocks diversity of thought and content because the networks have incentive to amplify fringe voices and events at the expense of others, all because it pumps up the ratings. Mark Hemingway, he says sober criticism of serious journalism uh, problems are um, rife and most welcome. Barry Weiss says integrity uh, eager to uh, see what Ariane, uh, the person who's left MSNBC, does next. And uh, YouTube is allowing videos promoting Antifa violence, but they're censoring fact-based videos from Heather McDonald. After rattling off a list of awful things your kids can access on YouTube, she explains, uh, yet your kids can't watch a live stream speech on policing I gave on Thursday, arguing that the U.S. law enforcement isn't engaged in systematic violence against blacks. YouTube has deemed the speech inappropriate for children under 18 and blocked access to minors. I suppose I should be grateful. At least it's on the web uh, at all. YouTube had initially wiped the speech off its servers entirely on the grounds that it violated the site's community guidelines for keeping YouTube a safe place. No further explanation was given. So if you uh, have a different opinion on the subject of policing and the abuse of power, you're not welcome, apparently, on YouTube. Now, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. We'll continue to look at some of the headlines. And then we'll talk with Dr. Michelle Watson Canfield, her latest book, Let's Talk, Conversation Starters for Dads and Daughters. She's also the host of Father Whisperer uh, here on KPDQ. We'll talk a little bit about her journey and her new book. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Looking forward to a conversation with Dr. Michelle Watson Canfield, host of The Dad Whisperer and author of Let's Talk, Conversation Starters for Dads and Daughters. The book is published by Bethany. She'll join us for our next couple of segments. Returning to the news, private and parochial schools deserve the same opportunity and flexibility to make reopening decisions based on public health guidelines. That's a quote from Maryland Governor um, Hogan, who stopped the counties from forcing private schools to shut down. Well, the governor said the blanket closure mandate imposed by Montgomery County was overly broad and inconsistent with the powers intended to be delegated to the county health officers. Well, from Tim Carney on the same subject, he says, as uh, public schools and some private schools in Montgomery County, Maryland, were deciding to keep their doors closed and resort to all virtual schooling in the fall, many private and religious schools were investing in plexiglass and air filtration systems while consulting with infectious disease specialists in order to create a way to bring students into the school in the fall. County officials didn't care. They refused to look at the school plans and waved off guidance from state and federal officials of, uh, on their, um, uh, their way to barring non-public schools from meeting in person. Ben Shapiro points out that endless lockdown is not an option. Endless unemployment payments are not an option. Leaving children schoolless for a year is not an option. And pretending that these things represent responsible policy options 
is a lie. Meanwhile, from the Wall Street Journal, for most Americans, the coronavirus is a scourge. But teachers unions seem to think it's also an opportunity to squeeze more money from taxpayers and put their private and public charter school competition out of business. That's the only way to read the extraordinary effort by national and local union leaders to keep their members from returning to the classroom. In other news, a record number of first-time gun buyers was reached in 2020 when cities shut down their police departments. What's left to do? To defend oneself. Gun sales also increased 133% in July. Jennifer Van Lar points out that I'm one of those who purchased another gun for self-protection. Well, a resident complained that a truck had a thin blue line flag on the back of it. From the story, uh, the mayor has blistered the fire department for showing support for the police department. Well, the mayor, who has uh, been the man in charge of Somerville since 2004, responded the next day by noting the flags are off the trucks and that an investigation was now underway to find out just how they got there. He also expressed hope that the people who did this horrible thing of expressing support for law enforcement officers did not realize how hurtful it would be to people in our community. So apparently... Supporting police officers, and obviously we're talking about law enforcement who function within the the law, which is the vast majority of them, is considered a scourge by one mayor um, because the fire department tried to express their support for the police department. And OutSports, an LGBT sports blog, doxed hundreds of female athletes who signed a letter to the NC2A urging the organization not to boycott Idaho over a law preventing transgender athletes from competing in female sports. The website continued on to write that signing the letter meant each individual was standing in favor of discrimination and that the people ought to be held accountable. So dissenting opinion is not acceptable. Uh, by the NC2A. On this day in history, 1830, plans for the city of Chicago are laid out. 1936, Jesse Owens wins the second of his four gold medals for the United States at the Berlin Olympics as he prevails in the long jump over German Lutz Long, who is the first to congratulate him. And they had a lifelong friendship following that Olympic game. 1944, Anne Frank is arrested with her sister, parents, and four others by the Gestapo after hiding for two years inside a building in Amsterdam. Anne and her sister Margot would die in the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. On this day in history, 1977, President Jimmy Carter signs a measure establishing the Department of Energy. And finally, on this day in history, 1933, a federal judge sentences Los Angeles police officer Stacy Kuhn and Lawrence Powell to a two and a half year stint in prison for violating Rodney King's civil rights. You might recall after the rioting, he simply said to the general public, can't we all just get along? We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. And I have to tell you, I have been looking forward to the conversation you're going to be in on for quite some time. I'm going to be talking with Dr. Michelle Watson Canfield, and we'll tell you more about that in just a few minutes. She has a new book out. She, of course, is the host of The Dad Whisperer, heard here on KPDQ, and is the author. And this is her second new book. Uh, She's uh, written a book before this one. And as has always been the case, Uh, She is writing about dads and daughters. So the relationship between a daughter 
and the relationship she has with her dad is one of the most important relationships she's ever going to have. That certainly was the case in my life and in my upbringing. But the truth is many dads struggle to connect deeply with their daughters as those daughters mature and their lives become more complex. Well, there is a critical need for fresh and effective resources that equip a dad to engage in the battle for their daughter's heart. Well, the new book is Let's Talk, Conversation Starters for Dads and Daughters. Uh, It's a new book, and I'm excited to connect you with that and with Dr. Michelle. Now, for those of you who have yet to hear Dr. Michelle's program here on KPDQ, she is a licensed professional counselor, speaker, author, and founder of the Alpha Project. It's an educational uh, process group. Uh, It's a forum for dads and daughters ages 13 to 30. She's a radio podcast host of The Dad Whisperer and co-chair of the Father-Daughter Initiative at the National Center for Fathering. She uh, wants to live out her God-given assignment by inspiring, equipping, and leading fathers to dial into their daughters' hearts with more intentionality and consistently Uh, Dr. Michelle maintains a full-time counseling practice in her hometown right here in Portland. And Dr. Michelle was recently married. We'll definitely touch on that in the course of our conversation. Dr. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, I'm so excited to be here, Georgine. Thanks for having me. Now, you are newly married. I'm not sure if you talked much about that on your program, but first of all, I want to say congratulations, and I want to give you an opportunity to tell our listeners a little bit about the marriage itself, because we are, as you well know, in the middle of a pandemic. How did you manage to work that out? Oh, my goodness. That's the question of all questions. You know, we (laughs) invited 425, and we were down to 25 in the end. But truly, I cried more tears over that change than ever before. I'm 60 years old and it's my it was my first marriage, which is really unusual, right? And I married a widower who I've known since 2011 who started the National Center for Fathering 30 years ago. I was friends with his wife and she's in heaven now. And so God led Dr. Ken Canfield and I together and we share a kindred spirit passion for fathers of daughters especially. And so our wedding in June ended up being 25 people in our church, but my friends had a wedding parade afterwards. You know, those are the thing, right? And yes, people came through the line. We had our jazz band out there and it was super fun and redemptive. Go figure. (laughs) You know, I was planning on being among the guests at your wedding and I was so grateful that you streamed it live uh, online. So I was able to be a guest, you know, socially distanced from my home. (laughs) And it was such a God honoring, sweet ceremony. And I was just rejoicing for you. Uh, and your first marriage to this wonderful man and to be a part of that ceremony. I loved what you did to include all of us. Oh, thank you for thank you for coming. Even from <laughs> distance. Honestly, this may sound ridiculous, but we felt you. We felt the presence of our friends and family across the country. And so I don't know how God did that, but he did. Now, as I mentioned, um, and you mentioned, this is your first marriage. Uh, I think for many women, when they reach their 50s, their 60s, that's a dream that you just put on the shelf and uh, suppose that, you know, God has other plans for you. And certainly God has uh, used your life in so many significant ways up until this point. Um, can you talk just a little bit about how the two of you uh, came to be connected and what that weight was like for you? Were you a woman who thought, you know, God has promised that one day I will marry or that you had just decided, Lord, I'm going to leave this in your hands. What you decide to do, I'll uh, I'll either stay single or be married. Can you explain a little bit about your journey? Sure. Well, as you can imagine, I agonized over being single for a lot of years, like a lot of single women, really aching, aching in my heart to be married. And then 
five years ago on a random Sunday afternoon, I was journaling in my backyard and I had this click where I realized that God was changing my heart away from marriage. I was going to say against, but it really wasn't against it. And I really felt this clarity that I never had had at that level where I said, I want to invest in turning the hearts. God said the hearts of fathers have to turn, not the heads of fathers. The hearts have to turn. Malachi 4, 6. And I went, I want to invest in this country, across this nation, till every heart of every father with a daughter has turned toward her, and I'm not going to stop. And I gave up marriage five years ago, if you can believe this, Georgine, in June of 15, the five years to the day almost, God gave me a husband. And so I had fully surrendered and actually said no to marriage. And then I began to feel a stirring in my spirit. And I wrote in my journal, God, if you want me to marry Ken, if you ask me to, I will. So I tell Ken, you know, this is only obedience. That's all this is, you know, <laughs> and to get the kick out of that. But truly, I would say women who are single, who are listening to this right now, this conversation, I would encourage you to run hard in the lane that God has given you and, and don't waste time. It's easy to say that, but I did that. I didn't just pine away to be married and be on hold. I've run hard the last decade, especially in pursuing the hearts, teaching dads to pursue the hearts of their daughters. And then God gave me a man with a similar passion and vision. And what I've told my daughter oftentimes, I have an honorary daughter, never having been married. I'm her mama because her mama's in heaven. And I told her, her name is Taylor Gukundi. And I, I always told her before she got married, Find a man where your visions line up. Do your I don't care if he loves his mama and he loves Jesus. That's good. But do your visions line up? So women, don't wait till you get married to find your passion and vision. Go after it now. God will give you the desires of your heart as you run after him in his time. This was way later than I ever would have said it would have worked. But I now honestly wouldn't choose it any other way. God knew what he was doing. Absolutely. And his timing is always, always perfect. I just love that you emphasize that we need to pursue uh, God and his desire for us and, and his purpose in our life without waiting for some other thing that will somehow in our minds uh, complete us or fulfill us or uh, give us those answers, but to pursue God and to trust him with that future that he may have for us. Exactly. Well said. Yeah. Well, you have um, spent your career helping fathers to pursue their daughters' hearts. What what started you on that journey? What I mean, you, you mentioned the scripture just a moment ago, but what to your mind was the need that needed to be met uh, with fathers across the country in meeting with their daughters in meaningful and deep and profound ways? You know, I've been mentoring and counseling and coaching daughters since I was 19, you know, so this is over 40 years. And when I really have looked back over these decades, I think of how often I've sat with women, literally, it could be at a McDonald's, it could be here in my counseling office, or wherever, with tears streaming down their cheeks saying, my dad hurt my feelings, my dad is so busy, even these are men in ministry. Mm -hmm. And I think oftentimes dads don't realize their daughters long for more of their time, their attention, their friendship. And we as daughters thrive when our dads invest in us. So do sons, of course. But you can tell an empowered woman. I usually will ask, tell me about your relationship with your dad. You're so confident. It always goes together. And so when I've looked at the heart cries of women, young women, girls, God really knew what he was doing and sending me from what I say, my planet of Venus, right? Women are, men are from Mars. Women are from Venus, sent me to Mars 
to help dads who oftentimes are lost without a compass or a plan on how to connect with their daughters. And so I've been coaching dads here in the ABBA project. ABBA means daddy in Aramaic and men love a project, hence the name, for a decade. And men keep coming, Georgine, go figure. And they champion each other while they look at me and go, tell me, Dr. Michelle, we don't know what to say about body image. We're not really comfortable with that one. We send mom in. I'm like, well, did you actually know the research shows that every area of your daughter's life better if she feels connection to you? She'll get better grades. She's more likely to finish high school. She'll have less body dissatisfaction, healthier weight, greater self-esteem, less depression, less suicide attempts, uh, more pro-social empathy. Boy, when we have, when have we needed that more than now? Yeah. Like every area is better when she feels connected to you. So I want to help you have questions in front of you for your dad-daughter dates to engage her heart and to get the conversations going. And that ended up now being the impetus for the book that I just wrote with Conversation Starters for Dads. Mm. Well, this is your second book to dads and daughters. Um, You found uh, that men would rather do nothing than make a mistake when it comes to their daughters. I mean, they love them, they care about them, they care about their futures, but it's an uncomfortable space for many men who, as you point out, would rather do nothing than make a mistake. What do you say to the dad who is reluctant because, you know, I don't even know how to go there. Right. Well, well, most men say, if I don't know that I can do it, I would rather not do it because I want to be competent. Right. And so I've said my observation from my 10 years of traveling from Venus to Mars is that men would rather do nothing than do it wrong. Mm -hmm. Pretty much every man goes, yep, that's it. And I said, but you get that doing nothing is doing it wrong. And they go, yeah. And then I come alongside them to champion them. And I say, but I know you want to do it right. So when a dad is reluctant because he doesn't know what to do, because maybe you have a daughter in her teens where almost everything you say or do is either wrong or causes an explosion or causes a misunderstanding, I think a lot of men are smart enough to say, you know what, I'm going to back off and send mom in. But again, back to what I just said, Georgine, about the research confirming that that dad-daughter connection is so vital to her health and well-being is I'm saying dad need dads need more tools in their fathering toolbox about how how do they move forward even when she doesn't know she needs him how can he open a conversation and so I that's why I give them scripts and I say then if your daughter says dad that is a lame question that you're asking me he can blame me and I'm his fall guy (laughs) (laughs) there you go we are talking with uh, Dr. Michelle Watson Canfield. She is the author of a second book, Let's Talk Conversation Starters for Dads and Daughters. We need to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit about how the book is structured, which is so practical. I think dads will love it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Michelle Watson Canfield. She is the host of The Dad Whisperer, 
and she is the author most recently of Let's Talk, Conversation Starters for Dads and Daughters. The book is published by Bethany House. We'll make sure you know how you can get it, either for yourself or for the father in your household or family. It's a great uh, resource. One of the things that you uh, spoke about a moment ago is how beneficial it is for a, a girl, a woman, to have a strong relationship with her dad. But you also write about how a father's benefit by being the role model and the go-to for their daughters. How do men benefit from taking on the God-given role uh, that they have as fathers? You know, when dads know they're doing it right, going back to that that phrase, Mm -hmm. I find that men are happier, they're more confident. When a dad knows he's getting it right because he notices that his daughter is happier with that connection to him, dads benefit because they're then happier, more confident, because every dad I know wants peace in his home. And truth be told, oftentimes a dad's anger shuts the whole family down, right? And dads get frustrated when they see disrespect between a child, a daughter and mother, or between siblings. But dads need more resources, I have found, to just be more calm, more engaged. And and this is just a practical thing I'll throw in here for free, Georgine, is (laughs) if you're a dad that maybe is more prone to anger, to being short-fused, join the club, that's what most men that I've coached tell me, that that's kind of their dark side, is give yourself a timeout that matches your age. Remember how we do that with kids? You're three years old, you get a three-minute timeout. You're five years old, you get a five-minute timeout. Dad, calm yourself down with time. You're going to need 50-minute timeout if if you're 50 years old. And let yourself in that time breathe, go outside, take a walk, catch your breath so that you're being really careful in how you engage your daughter because you shut her down with your anger. So if you're a dad who really wants a practical tool like that, I'm all about giving dads really practical ways to be able to not only take care of themselves, but really engage their daughters. What can dads do when the daughters are reluctant? They may be a little uncomfortable as their dad approaches them and attempts to deepen their relationship. How do you advise dads who are confronted with that? A dad is going to have to get really creative by asking his daughter, what could I do to be a better dad to you? Mm. I would love for us to be closer. You know, because I don't I don't think we're as close as, as I'd like us to be. So he's going to have to basically do this on her terms. And I think of one daughter. She's given me permission to share this. 14-year-old Maggie said that her dad came home for some of the other project saying, hey, you know, I'm doing this dad's group. And, you know, we have to do a once a month date. She's like, ew, you know, <laughs> ew. she's in you know, junior middle school going, that's not quite what I thought was fun. And she told me this started out with me going, this is really lame, but dad was committed. And guess what she said? I'd like you to just start with five minutes a day checking in with me. And she actually told me it grew to not only 30 minutes, but then 60 minutes a day oftentimes. And dad told me I got to bed later than I ever had because that's when she would open up and talk to me. So dad, if you start out with a reluctant daughter that's saying like Maggie, ew, Find out where she opens up. It might be late at night and you get less sleep. I had dads that say, hey, my daughter loves food. Find her favorite restaurant. Bribe her with time with you by taking her to a restaurant. And bring Let's Talk, the book I wrote, Conversation Starters for Dads and Daughters, is your playbook. The questions are there. You can write in answers or get an adjunct journal. 
I'm telling you, I have had so many women go, my dad is so adorable. He's sitting there kind of clumsy in a way, fumbling through these questions, but it's so cute. Like, how can I not help him out? You know, <laughs> you throw a guy a bone here, you know, so dad, find what your daughter loves and, and do it. I had another dad once, Georgine, his daughter would only do one question in the truck in the Burger King parking lot. Like she was like, I don't want this whole long thing. She was ninth grade, short attention span, and dad made it work. And at the end of the opera project, this dad, literally, I quote him to this day, his name is Rick. He said, because of what I've learned in how to calm myself, engage her, ask questions, pace with her. He said, I'm a better dad now, even to my sons. I'm a better husband to my wife and I'm a better manager at work. So dad, you don't want to base success just on the response of your daughter. Base it on what you're learning in the process of engaging her heart. That's mm, so good. Well, in Let's Talk, you have hundreds of scripted questions for a dad. He doesn't have to come up with these things on his own. These are questions that he asks his daughter in order to strengthen their relationship uh, with one another. Talk a little bit about why it's important for a dad and a daughter to have these regular conversations that grow into deeper relationship that will serve that daughter and that father well. And as you just pointed out, in a variety of areas of life. You know, that is a great question because if a dad can get his daughter talking, her heart opens. I mean, I would ask every dad, can you tell when the women in your life are closed down, the wall is up, she's shut down? I mean, men go, yep, it's pretty obvious because she stops talking. Heart closed, mouth closed. So now reverse that. If a daughter starts talking with you, her heart naturally opens to you. And when a daughter's heart is open, a dad's heart is open, right? It just goes together. So it really comes down to talking is a way to strengthen a dad-daughter bond in a way like nothing else. Even, yeah, you can do things together, but we girls figure things out by talking. That's something I want dads to really take to heart is sometimes we don't know what we're thinking. And I call it like the hamster wheel in our head where we're just going around <laughs> and around. But if we can, if you can help us open that cage door and get out for some fresh air, when you ask questions, it helps us figure out things we don't even know we're thinking. So that's where it comes down to me wanting to equip men to lead. So that I have, you know, these sections in the book that are all about lead her to laugh, lead her to love, lead her to look, lead her to lament and lead her to listen. Because the more a dad can lead his daughter in these areas, it builds his competence and his confidence. Oh, that's so good. You were talking a few moments ago about a daddy-daughter date. And I have to tell you, when I was growing up, it seems to me of all my experiences in youth that stand out as being most meaningful, the daddy-daughter date just made the world of difference to me. So I so appreciate your encouraging men to do that. It was such a simple thing, and yet it had such a tremendous impact. You offer in the book some practical and some creative ways for dads to date their daughters um, who are, you know, maybe clueless as to where to even begin. Talk a little bit about some of the creative ideas that you have that will help dads who might have already thought, man, I, I have no idea where to take my daughter to well, start this process. I want to put you on the hot seat. Where did your dad take you? We went to a Chinese restaurant. Uh, the one that stands out the most is we went to a Chinese restaurant. It was just he and I. We were dressed up. We sat across the table from one another. We had the linen napkins. Um, you know, I had my dad all to myself. I had his full undivided attention. And I'm telling you, it just it changes everything about a girl's heart. 
And, you know, I spent time with my dad on other occasions as well. But that, to me, just stood out as a life-changing experience and a highlight of my upbringing. <laughs> Is it? Yeah, and you remember it to this day. In fact, yes. my, first, my dad wanted my first date with him to be when I was 16. Do you ever remember that German restaurant, the Rhinelander? Oh, yeah. Poland? So he took me again to a nice restaurant with lemons, go figure. And <laughs> he opened the door. He pulled out the chair. Yes you know, made it really special. And I think dad sometimes might think that's a little old fashioned. I'm telling you, we girls open up with those kinds of things. So creative ways, dad, that you can quote date your daughter is all kinds of ways. Again, like I told you, some go to a favorite restaurant. I've known some dads that have done batting practice with their kids. They're like, I don't like the girly girl stuff. And that's become their rhythm. And when I think about like prom, I think 99% of the fun of prom is the prep. And so dad, when you've set a date for your for your dad-daughter time, if your daughter thinks the word date is really outdated, I've had some fifth grade girls, three of them, I was like, what do you think of dad-daughter dates? And they all go, yuck, that is so gross. We don't date our dad. <laughs> Use whatever term you think yeah, you don't yeah. would like dad, but create a one-on-one rhythm is that looking forward to to the time together is such a big thing for us as girls because we know it's then that we can unload. Like I love Georgine, how you said undivided attention, because when a daughter doesn't get that from her dad, she is open prey for guys that are players that'll go that way. It's like they can pick them out of a lineup when there's a big vacant void in a girl's heart for male attention. You really can pick them out of a lineup compared to girls that have invested dads. Yeah. We're talking with Dr. Michelle uh, Watson Canfield. She is the host of the Dad Whisperers here on KPDQ, and she's the author of Let's Talk, Conversation Starters for Dads and Daughters. And as far as I'm concerned, one conversation is not enough. We're going to continue this conversation tomorrow at this very same time. We'll start at about half past uh, four o'clock, continuing our conversation. Now, just quickly, our listeners who can't wait, where can they get Let's Talk, Conversation Starters for Dads and Daughters? Well, they can go to my website, drmichellewatson.com, just D-R-M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E, watson.com, and there's a link there. You can buy it anywhere. I have a link there on Amazon, but Barnes & Noble carries it, christianbook.com, and I'd love to get your feedback and hear how you like it, dads, and how it works to strengthen your bond with your daughters. Absolutely. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll uh, have news and traffic, and then we'll talk about uh, Republicans and Democrats who agree that uh, there's a need to cancel the so-called cancel culture. We'll also talk with Dr. Kevin Pham. He's a policy analyst. We'll talk about hydroxychloroquine and whether or not it is a cure, if it's a, a help. We'll find out what we know about the drug, what we don't know, and what we should do moving forward. We'll also talk with Hans von Spakovsky. He's an authority on a wide range of issues. We're going to talk about all male voting and how that poses some pretty grave dangers. And we have some recent examples to look to Michigan, New York, and so on, where elections are still undecided with all mail-in voting. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, news and traffic up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with Dr. Kevin Pham. He's a policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about what we know now about hydroxychloroquine to treat COVID-19. We'll also hear from Hans von Spakovsky, an authority on a wide range of issues, civil rights, civil justice, the First Amendment, immigration. We're going to talk about the all-male voting that poses a grave danger to our election in November. 
They're having trouble with ballots in Michigan, in New York City, and elsewhere. He wrote a column on the subject. We'll talk about that when he joins us later this hour as well. Well, seeing the rise of cancel culture can lead one to despair, but don't believe the hype. Virtue is not being canceled. Most Americans, in fact, believe forgiveness is an essential part of a just society. Angela Saylor uh, points out that Republicans and Democrats agree on the need to cancel so-called cancel culture. Now, consider a recent survey by the Cato Institute. It revealed that 49% of all Americans say cancel culture is negative. Only 27% said cancel culture has a positive impact on society. The poll suggests that Americans are more forgiving than the sword fighters who constantly seek revenge on social media platforms. Again, according to Cato's survey, nearly two-thirds or 62% of Americans say the political climate these days prevents them from saying things they believe because others might find them offensive. Even more alarming, the share of Americans who self-censor has alarmingly risen several points since 2017. And of course, that is, at least in part, the goal to shut down dissent, to prevent people from challenging the view that they are trying to um, champion. These fears cut across party lines. 52% of Democrats, 59% of independents, 77% of Republicans agree they have political opinions they're afraid to share. That's what the survey notes. Cancel culture is a direct assault on the construct of forgiveness. It seeks not to fix, but to destroy. It's the poisonous pill that fatally blocks a perspective cure for human weaknesses. It uh, diametrically opposes forgiveness, an age-old virtue central not only to the Christian faith, but even to our nation's founding, without which we could not stand as a constitutional republic. Alexander Hamilton left a footprint for forgiveness in Federalist Number 74, where he noted how the president must be able to make exceptions in his power of the pardon for unfortunate guilt. Otherwise, the justice system would be too um, uh, sanguinary and cruel. Additionally, Hamilton pointed out, Presidents may need to use clemency to subdue discontent or insurrection and thereby restore the tranquility of the commonwealth. Well, disrupting the tranquility of the commonwealth seems to be the goal today, but restoring it is what forgiveness hinges on. Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution authorizes the president to grant pardons and other forms of clemency involving offenses against the United States. Understanding that human beings are flawed and biased, pardons were established as a safety valve to mitigate or remedy injustice. In 1795, President George Washington said in his annual address to Congress that he was motivated to show mercy and to serve the public good by pardoning two men charged with treason after the Whiskey Rebellion. Washington's display of forgiveness laid a foundation for how future presidents would use clemency. Well, this power has been used often. P.S. Ruckman, uh, Jr., a political scientist and editor of the blog Pardon Power, counts just over 30,000 individual acts of presidential clemency from Presidents Washington to Obama. Now, imagine if we were founded on the notion of public shaming and humiliation, exterminating without due process everyone with whom we disagree. The Salem witch trials show just how a temporary crazed society did act under such tyrannical rule. The American identity exhibits greater dimensions of freedom. As members of a civil society, we must reclaim this identity. We have a legal system designed to punish criminal behavior. Ethics uh, map out the parameter of acceptable behavior and societal norms as a whole dictate whom to honor or admire or associate with or engage. 
But cancel culture militates against all these mediating habits and institutions, and that's why it has to stop. We need to confront our failures and provide enough space and flexibility to ensure freedom of expression and debate and to avoid abuses by the gladiators who cowardly seek to eliminate the existence of those that they disagree with or are offended by, or at least to silence them, to silence dissent. Frederick Douglass' extraordinary ability to say to his former owner, Hugh Auld, I love you but hate slavery, is an incredible example of how we must separate the actor's actions from the person. And that may be near impossible in our day, but the man who had struck down my personality, had subjected me to his will, had made the property of my body and soul, was no enemy, Douglas explained. He was to me no longer a slaveholder, either in fact or in spirit, and I regarded him as I did myself, a victim of the circumstances of birth, education, law, and custom. Now, this is wholly unacceptable in our day, that someone who was the victim of the oppressor, in this case, was him fat, in fact himself a slave, says he was to me no longer a slaveholder, either in fact or in spirit, and I regarded him as I did myself, a victim of circumstances, of birth, education, law, and custom. This is incredibly magnanimous, but this is an example of forgiveness. We find the most references to forgiveness in the Christian New Testament. The story most often cited in Luke 15 is of the prodigal son who squandered his father's inheritance. Then he humbly returned to his loving father's arms. To his surprise and that of many readers for two millennia, his father unconditionally accepted and loved him despite his moral failings. Well, today, however... Everyone is judge and jury, and for that matter, executioner, looking down the barrel of conformity and ignoring a just society's standards. Cancel culture has to be canceled. Forgiveness must be our pillar of justice. In 1772, an English slave trader named John Newton was transporting slaves from Africa and confronted a vicious storm. His craft was severely weather-beaten, compelling him to call out to God for mercy and deliverance. Newton subsequently led a movement to abolish the slave trade in 1788. He also wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. Its immortal words continue to remind Americans and others around the world that forgiveness and the redemption that comes with it are possible regardless of sins committed. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Grace, something lacking in our time, and I pray that it can one day be restored. Taking a look at the coronavirus in Oregon, they're telling us in the latest sign of coronaviruses spread through Oregon, the state health authority on Monday reported 272 new cases, two more deaths and the highest percentage of weekly positive tests since the earliest days of the pandemic. I don't know if there's any adjustment made for the number of tests taken now as opposed to the earliest days of the pandemic, but confirmed or presumed coronavirus infections have largely plateaued, they tell us, over the past three weeks, hovering around all-time highs, averaging 300-plus cases per day. Deaths over the past are also at record highs, with at least 25 people dying each week. And now comes the distressing news that Oregonians tested last week were more likely to be positive for coronavirus than at any point since before March the 14th, when fewer than 650 people had been screened. The state on Monday reported 35,424 tests for the week ending Saturday. Uh, Of those, 6.1% were positive, a new record since testing became more readily available in the state. 
Oregon's weekly positivity rate, they're telling us, uh, had steadily climbed between mid-May and mid-July. It reached 5.8% before falling for one week to 4.8%. Now, the important numbers, and obviously it's important if we are contracting COVID-19, but the death rate um, is not following the percentage rate, so that's at least some good news. Uh, They tell us that... um, Between mid-May and mid-July, it had reached 5.8% before falling for one week to 4.8%. And now they're telling us the positive test rate climbs to 6.1%, the highest in four months in the state of Oregon. Meanwhile, in New York, uh, the New York Times first reported that Barbeau, who is the um, New York City Health Commissioner, she has resigned, citing de Blasio's handling of the coronavirus a pandemic. She wrote that she was resigning with deep disappointment. Uh, the commissioner, Dr. Orxis Barbeau, resigned from her post today, citing the mayor's handling of the coronavirus pandemic in a critical letter. De Blasio confirmed that he received her resignation. Uh, the New York Times first reported the, uh, that she submitted that resignation to de Blasio amid a clash between the mayor and the city's health officials. She wrote, I leave my post today with deep disappointment that during the most critical public health crisis in our lifetime, that the health department's incomparable disease control expertise was not used to the degree it could have been, she wrote to de Blasio. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Dr. Kevin Pham. He's a policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about what we know now about hydroxychloroquine to treat COVID-19. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the question is, what do we know about hydroxychloroquine to treat COVID-19? We're hearing all different kinds of answers to that question. Well, a great deal of evidence says it doesn't work, but enough evidence says hydroxychloroquine does work that it would be irresponsible, my next guest says, to write it off completely at this time, especially in combination with other drugs. Well, joining us to talk about this is Dr. Pham. He is a policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation. He had a a commentary in uh, public health and also the Daily Signal, uh, helping us to better understand the drug hydroxychloroquine that's been around for a very long time, but whether or not it's efficacious for treating covid 19 is an open question that a lot of us are confused about. Dr. Pham, thank you so much for joining us to bring some clarity. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Well, I appreciate that you put this in into perspective um, because we're hearing different uh, reports about what hydroxychloroquine can do, what it does with patients who are severely ill, what it does in combination with other uh, drugs or other um, other things. So let's begin by why is it back in the news right now that hydroxychloroquine is either reputed as being completely unhelpful or championed as the answer to COVID-19? Right. There's There are at least three different um, studies that concluded and the results were released in the month of, uh, in the last month of July. And the first, the bit, first big study was the one that came out of the um, Henry Ford Health System. And that showed, that was a retrospective study that showed that it worked very well to uh, reduce mortality. But that was a retrospective study. There were two other studies in July, and they were both prospective studies. They were clinical trials um, with controls, and they both showed that hydroxychloroquine did not provide a clinical benefit. And now, the, um, this, is, this thrust, the stu- thrust the drug back into the news because people are sort of taking the study that they want to, that they want to believe in and then ignoring the other studies, whether you're for or against the drug for use as a, for, as a uh, COVID-19 drug. So 
there's a lot of controversy and what it really what really what we really need to take away from this is that the science is still in development we're still learning more about this drug what it seems to me is that there's there's fewer and fewer use cases for this drug but not everything has been studied and there are there are some issues with the 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 prospective studies as well so we can't conclude either way whether it does or does not work now, what did you make of the panel of doctors who recently popped up on Facebook and other uh, social media platforms saying that hydroxychloroquine, we've been using it in our practice on real patients over a period of time, and this has saved the lives of our parents, of our patients. Now, a lot of people saw that. These are practicing doctors uh, and have drawn uh, the conclusion that hydroxychloroquine is, in fact, the answer, um, but we're being told otherwise for political reasons. What do you say to those who are uh, we're persuaded by that and uh, now wonder <laughs> what to believe. Uh, I honestly found their uh, their testimony, especially um, Dr. Emmanuel. She had talked about all the patients that she's treated, including high-risk patients who have done better um, from the COVID-19 disease, even after having been treated with, or rather having been treated with hydroxychloroquine. I find that compelling, but it's not convincing. Like it's not enough for me to decide definitively mm-hmm. that it does therefore work. Um, because she said that she's treated uh, over 350 patients, which is, you know, it's a lot of patients. But if we're talking about a large enough sample size to gather enough data for this to, to really make a determination, 350 is not that much. Um, there have been studies uh, with hydroxychloroquine that include um, over 4,000 patients. So just in comparison, it's not a very good sample size. Um, but like I said, it's it's compelling, just not convincing. I, you know, 350 patients is not enough for a study um, mm-hmm. to really tell, but, but 350 is not nothing, you know? Like there could be something there. And especially, she said that she had used zinc as well, which there aren't any, as far as I can, as far as I'm aware, there aren't, there haven't been any randomized controlled trials that include zinc in the, uh, in the study. So that's still something that we need to, uh, to explore. And from my understanding, there are a lot of, a uh, lot of people studying this at this point. We may not have a definitive answer uh, in the near term, but there are lots of studies that are trying to determine whether or not and under what circumstances it might be helpful. Exactly. There are, there are several hundred studies going on right now throughout the world with hydroxychloroquine and various uh, combinations. There are at least several dozen studies um, with hydroxychloroquine with zinc. So there's still a lot of questions that people are asking. There's still a lot of things that are going on. Another, another problem that I've had with some of the, uh, the randomized trials that have been released so far is that they have they haven't done a very good job randomizing their sample for one and two. Uh, sometimes they add in more patients than would be helpful. For instance, if your study includes patients who are already on a ventilator, I don't think hydroxychloroquine is ever going to have much of a chance of improving your condition if you're already on a ventilator. It's it's simply the, the antiviral effects or the, the immunomodulatory effects just aren't strong enough to get someone to, to really change their condition like that. So to do a study that really tells you, really need to narrow down the uh, the sample as to what exactly you're looking for. Now, this has become highly politicized. I imagine because the president at one point had uh, suggested that this was going to be very helpful, the government purchased a, a large quantity of hydroxychloroquine in hopes that it would be efficacious. Um, is that the source of the politicization of all of this? Or why do you think it has become such a controversy uh, in terms of how people either embrace it as a potential, embrace it as the answer, or uh, reject it out of hand? Well, in order for something to be divisive, there needs to be two people, right? Otherwise, there's no division to be had. 
so, you know, the president and his supporters and the media and the detractors of the president, they, form, they sort of formed uh, these opposing tribes. And for, for really bad purposes, hydroxychloroquine got caught up in this, this sort of mm-hmm. feuding. And it's, it's really not helpful. And, and I do have to say that the, the president said that um, it could be a game changer. He never, I, don't, I don't believe he said it is a game changer. And if, it, and if he said it could be a game changer, he's absolutely correct because you know, it's, a, it's a cheap drug. It's widely available, very well tolerated. If it worked, then it would change the entire situation. But uh, as I've said, it hasn't worked for where we needed it thus far. So it, it's, that we have enough evidence now to say that it's probably not going to be a game changer unless we find like in prophylactic use or for in an outpatient setting or something like that, studies that haven't been done yet. But just as an overall, it's, it's not the silver bullet. Yeah, yeah. You write in your column in the Daily Signal, we don't know for certain if and in what manner hydroxychloroquine works. We should trust clinicians to review the data for themselves, and it would behoove the media, the politicians, and the public to let the science play out. I think there's a great deal of impatience, there's fear, and that guides many people in trying to interpret the data or the absence of data with regard to this drug, and I suppose with other things as well. Um, But we do need to be patient because there's a process that has to precede any conclusion about hydroxychloroquine or any other drug that might be efficacious in uh, in treating COVID-19. Are you optimistic that we are going to be patient (laughs) in moving forward (laughs) in trying to uh, resolve this? Uh, Well, I think we've already demonstrated that we're not a very patient people, but I am (laughs) optimistic. No, no, but I am optimistic that we will get out of this. Um, You know, there are several vaccines. In fact, today, I think, um, the Novavax results came out for their phase one, two uh, trial, and they have been really promising. Uh, more detail will be coming out, I think, tomorrow. So I'll be I'll be following up on that. But there are other there are several other vaccines that are already in their phase three trials. Um, I think that the, on the vaccine front, things are pro- progressing really really rapidly. Um, on the therapeutics front, then we already have seen that dexamethasone, a different old and well tolerated mm-hmm. drug, um, that's that's been shown to decrease mortality in patients who are uh, severely ill or about to become severely ill. So, uh, and remdesivir as well, it's, it's a new drug. <clears throat> it's shown to decrease or at least um, accelerate the time to a recovery. So we have things that are working on the margins. And, and, and it's, really, it's been really frustrating that we've been so focused on hydroxychloroquine because it's only one drug out of many yeah. that, we're, that we're investigating. So, you know, I, I am optimistic that we'll find something. It's just, uh, I understand why the American people are antsy to find answers and to an- antsy to come to an answer. And, um, but yeah, if, if we could be a little bit more patient and just extend a little grace towards people who have different yes. uh, ideas of how things are going, then I think we can get out of this. We really can. Yeah, I think so too. Well, Dr. Pham, I appreciate your writing. I, I'm becoming a fan. And I appreciate your taking the time to talk right. with us today. I appreciate that. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you. Again, Dr. Kevin Pham, policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation on what we know now about hydroxychloroquine to treat COVID-19. And once again, a healthy dose of patience is in order as those who uh, do this kind of work are working feverishly to come up with answers. Up next, we're going to talk with Hans von Spakovsky. He's an authority on a wide range of issues, including civil rights, civil justice, the First Amendment, immigration, and much more. We're going to talk about all-male voting and why he and others suggest it poses grave dangers. We'll offer some uh, contemporary examples in Michigan, New York City, and elsewhere. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, you've probably heard in Michigan they're having difficulty with their ballots. The Postal Service really can't manage all of the uh, the new uh, mail. There are delays, um, and the postmarks on those ballots makes it difficult to know which ones are valid and which ones are not. New York City had a, an election some six weeks ago. A judge has now ordered that the uh, ballots that had been thrown out because they couldn't be verified now have to be counted. Some say a mail-in ballot nationwide for the November 3rd election uh, is a harbinger for tremendous uh, upheaval. Others say there's no problem at all. We need to move forward. This is the best interest of the republic in an upcoming election. My next guest argues that Americans should insist on their right to vote in person in their polling places in November, where they can be sure their ballots are safely received and counting, counted rather. No one disputes that those uh, most at risk for the coronavirus pandemic may want to vote by absentee ballot, but a nationwide mail-in ballot is not the way to go. My guest is Hans von Spakoff. He's written extensively on the subject. He's an authority on a wide range of issues. He's with the Heritage Foundation, and I am so grateful to have you with us here today. Welcome. Thanks, Georgie. So we have two sides of this argument. On the one hand, we're being told there's really no issue with mail-in ballots. Uh, people do it all the time. They're not making a distinction between the absentee ballot and an all-by-mail ballot. Uh, and on the other hand, there are those like yourself who and the president who are saying this is fraught with all kinds of hazard, the U.S. Postal Service being perhaps at the top of that list. Make your case that we ought to be concerned about a mail-in election all across the country where this would be a complete um, change from the way most states have uh, engaged in elections up to this point. Sure. Um, by all mail elections, what we're talking about is um, states switching to a system where they simply mail an absentee ballot out to every registered voter, which the voter then fills out and mails back. And of course, the problem with that is that uh, all you have to do is look at the primaries that have occurred in the last three months, Wisconsin, the District of Columbia, Maryland, now New York, and you'll find that in those states where election officials were encouraging people to vote by absentee ballot, and there was a huge increase in the number of mail-in ballot or absentee ballots, uh, in every single state, uh, they had problems with voters complaining that they did not receive the absentee ballots they had requested. And in every single state, uh, they've had problems, uh, like in Wisconsin, the inspector general there just issued a report about uh, thousands of ballots that were found in um, mail processing facilities after the election that had never been delivered by voters. So that in itself you know, it shows the problem. Now, now imagine, uh, Georgine, remember in the last election, 2016, 130 million uh, Americans voted. If we switch to all mail elections in the many states that don't have it now, that would mean that the Postal Service would suddenly have to handle 260 million pieces of mail. They're not expecting 260 million because, of course, first they have to mail the absentee ballot out to voters mm -hmm. and they have to mail it back. Uh, the other problem with absentee or mail-in ballots is they're the ones most vulnerable to fraud, to being forged, to being stolen, and to voters being intimidated and pressured by uh, campaign workers and, and others in their homes. And again, all you got to do is look at right now, there's an investigation going on in Patterson, New Jersey. They had a municipal election there a couple of weeks ago. Uh, they switched to an all-mail election the results are in doubt, and four locals have already been criminally charged with engaging in absentee ballot fraud, including a local uh, city councilman. And that shows the vulnerabilities of this kind of a system.
Well, in addition to all of that, um, you point out that mail-in ballots also have a higher rejection rate than votes cast in person. Uh, First, explain why that's the case and the impact that would likely have on, say, a presidential election. Well, for example, in the New York primary we're just talking about, apparently the rejection rate was one in five, 20 percent. Same problem Mm. in uh, the Patterson, New Jersey race. And the, the, the data over the years shows, yes, they have a higher rejection rate. And here's why. Um, uh, ballots get rejected for everything from the signature not matching on the absentee ballot with the signature on file for the, with the voter to voters not providing all of the information that's required when you send back an absentee ballot. You know, states require things like your, your name as registered, your address and other information. If you don't provide that, it's going to get rejected. And the, the problem is, look, there's no election official in people's homes instructing them or answering their questions about how to handle the absentee ballot. You don't see these kind of problems in polling places, because if there is a problem, there's an election official there who can try to, to remedy the, the problem and solve it. Mm-hmm. Now, we mentioned the Postal Service a moment ago. My understanding is they don't postmark ballots, so it's impossible for election officials to determine whether the ballots was mailed in time in order to be counted, despite when it's actually delivered? Well, they're supposed to postmark them, but they don't always. And in fact, going back to the IG report I mentioned on Wisconsin, in fact, one of the things the Wisconsin, uh, it happened in the Wisconsin primary again, was um, ballots being handled by the U.S. Postal Service from voters being sent back to election officials in which the Postal Service neglected to postmark them. So election officials didn't count them because they didn't know if they had been uh, mailed prior to the end of election day. And without that postmarking, uh, they, they, they don't know whether to accept the ballot or not. Wow. Uh, I think we would probably be right to anticipate a delay in the, re- the election results. President Trump, in an interview just a day or so ago, made that point. Um, what's the procedure if there is a delay in the outcome of announcing the winner in the presidential election? And that could delay right up until inauguration. What happens under that circumstance? Well, first, he's definitely he's definitely right. There'll be a huge delay. New York, again, June 23rd was their primary. It's taken them six weeks to count the ballots because so many more mail-in ballots came in. Uh, under federal law, there's a federal statute about this. It basically says that if... Um, if the president and vice president uh, have not been determined by inauguration day, January 20th, the acting president will be the speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. I'm sorry, you took my breath away. So, uh... <laughs> so Nancy Pelosi, if Nancy Pelosi, uh, if she's still in office, would become the acting president. Now, the statute says she has to resign as the speaker and as a representative, but. In essence, uh, Nancy Pelosi would become the acting president until the, the, the election has been determined and we know uh, who the, the president and vice president are. So let me get this right. If there's a delay, January 20th or beyond, uh, the speaker would have to resign her post and her seat in the House until those numbers were actually made available. So there might be an advantage, it seems to me, to, to having a delay in the election outcome. Uh, they'd have to elect a new speaker and we could move forward uh, without uh, Ms. Uh, Pelosi. 
Well, yeah, I'm sure that uh, if, if <laughs> Democrats cheap, believe that they were, you know, no, I think if Democrats <laughs> believe that Joe Biden was going to lose, the next best thing they could hope for would, would, would be that the election is so chaotic, so confused that uh, uh, by on January 20th, we still don't know who, who's gotten the most votes because then Nancy Pelosi would take over. One of my concerns is that however the election is conducted, whatever the outcome is, there's going to be um, a hue and cry disputing the outcome of the election. And this just gives fodder uh, to that. If a certain percentage of the ballots are disregarded for reasons that uh, elections officials uh, would choose. Uh, and so it seems to me this adds to that concern about the outcome and the embrace of the American people and the peaceful transfer of power. Your concerns, if we move in this direction, the election is delayed. There's some question about uh, which ballots were considered, which ones were thrown out and so on. What do you think would happen? No, I think you're exactly right about um, the huge disputes over ballots that have been rejected. And again, we, we see that in New York, uh, because of the high rejection rate there, almost 20% of the ballots by election officials, a lawsuit was filed contesting the rejection of those ballots. And I think we would probably see the same thing happening all over the country. Look, this year, there have been close to 150 lawsuits filed in the, across the states over the, the rules governing the election. Uh, we have never seen this many lawsuits filed over uh, an upcoming election. So that's just what we need. One other thing to put on the ledger of things to disrupt uh, the, uh, the peace of the people. Well, we'll continue to, to follow this very closely. As you know, Oregon has vote by mail. It took years to put that in place. And while some of us... Right oppose the idea, at least there, it took a, a, you know, several years to make it even possible here, as opposed to just by the, the flip of a switch to um, change how elections are conducted all across the fruited plain. So this is, a, this is a big deal, and I hope uh, it will be taken seriously. And while we can go to grocery stores and shop, uh, we'll make it possible for people to go to their polling places to cast a ballot during this presidential election year. Hans von Spakovsky, thanks so much for joining us. Sure, thanks for having me. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, two students for life activists were arrested. They were activists. They're, they're kind of big these days. Activists are free to do whatever they want these days. Anyway, two students for life activists were arrested on Saturday. They attempted to uh, chalk black Preborn Lives Matter on the sidewalk outside a D.C. Planned Parenthood office. The apparent legal charge was defacing property. Now, what really matters is where you're defacing property, because if they'd put the gotten rid of the um, preborn, that probably would have been fine. Black Lives Matter. But that preborn was so offensive that it was considered defacing property in front of Planned Parenthood, despite the fact that they've now renounced their founder. They still embrace all of her initiatives, but they've renounced the founder because it at least makes them look better. Prior to the event, the Students for Life of America obtained a police permit. They wrote the mayor, Mayor Bowser, a letter explaining the nature of their event. It was reported in the Washington Post. And the letter said, in part, having opened the streets of our city for public expression, Students for Life of America and Frederick Douglass Foundation, Frederick Douglass, the former slave I quoted not long ago, uh, request the opportunity to add our voices to those concerned about the treatment of people of color in America. Black lives do matter, born and preborn, as too many people are lost in American 
today from causes that should be addressed and prevented for their disproportionate impact on minority communities, end quote. Well, the um, executive vice president of the group, Tina Whittington, uh, she also released a statement before the event saying, we know from Planned Parenthood's racist founder, Margaret Sanger, that ending black lives was a goal of the organization. And given the placement of Planned Parenthood abortion vendors and their marketing campaigns, that practice continues. But pro-life people in Washington, D.C. and across the country want to make it clear that every life matters and deserves a future. Well, the group originally planned on painting black preborn lives matter on the street. But when they arrived early Sunday morning, there were multiple police officers on the scene who said they were not allowed to paint the street. Two members of the group, Warner DePriest and Erica Caparelletti, uh, took children's chalk. They started chalking the message on the sidewalk. They were promptly arrested with no Miranda warning and no charges explained until 40 minutes after the arrest. Now, if they had brought uh, bottles, uh, Molotov cocktails, or if they had brought chains, frozen water bottles, um, I understand they have been using urine in bottles and other feces. Perhaps if they had brought that with them, they would have been permitted uh, to deface the property in front of Planned Parenthood. But no, they just brought children's chalk. They were summarily arrested. When charges were explained, they weren't valid. Trespassing on private property, false, as the area in question was public sidewalk. And defacement, false, as sidewalk chalk would have been gone within the next rain. According to the Post, it is illegal for people to write or mark on any public or private property without a permit. The district's Department of Transportation, which issues permits, did not respond to calls and emails seeking comment. So, so much for certain black lives mattering and making the statement in front of a Planned Parenthood, which is essentially sacrosanct in our culture. Well, in other news, a life-sized statue of Billy Graham will be installed at the U.S. Capitol's statuary life-sized um, statuary hall, rather, uh, collection sometime next year, replacing a statue of a white supremacist that both the state of North Carolina and the U.S. House want removed. Well, last week, a North Carolina legislative committee approved a two-foot model of the statue depicting the famous evangelist who died in 2018. The sculptor will now begin working on a life-size model that will uh, have to be approved by a congressional committee. Fagan, uh, Chaz Fagan is the um, sculptor, uh, has previously created several statues for religious figures, including St. John Paul II for Washington's St. Jo- Paul uh, St. John Paul II National Shrine, as well as Mother Teresa for the Washington National Cathedral. The U.S. Capitol Statuary Hall Collection consists of 100 statues of prominent people, two from each state. Graham, a North Carolina native who was born on a dairy farm in Charlotte, will take the place of Charles Acock, uh, a former governor. Acock was one of the masterminds of the 1898 Wilmington, North Carolina race riot and coup in which a local government was um, Uh, made up of black Americans, was overthrown and replaced by white officials. North Carolina's other statue of Zebulon Vance, a former governor and U.S. senator who was also a Confederate military officer. With statues to white supremacists and Confederate leaders toppling across the nation, North Carolina's uh, reconsideration might seem timely. But in fact, installing a statue of Graham at the U.S. Capitol had widespread support long before the most recent reckoning on race. Former North Carolina State Senator Dan Salk, he pushed for the new statue in 2015 while Graham was still alive. Soon after his death, the process kicked into gear. From a Christian religious point of view, Billy Graham is an undeniable worldwide icon, Mr. um, Salkett said. He cited the six decades Graham placed among the top ten in Gallup polls list of most admired people. 
For years, he'd been one of North Carolina's most famous luminaries. There are two state highways named to honor him. One of Charlotte's biggest tourist attractions is the barn-shaped library documenting his life and ministry that includes his restored childhood home and gravesite. Graham's son, Franklin, whose Samaritan's Purse ministry is also located in North Carolina, said he's seen a rendering of the statue, which features the elder Graham as he looked in the 1960s, preaching and holding a Bible in one hand. Franklin Graham said the statue was not something his father would have pushed for, saying my father would be very pleased that people thought of him in this way, but he would want people to give God the glory and not himself. Well, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, in, in partnership with the state, is raising money for the statue and its installation, which is estimated to cost about $650,000. No state funds will be used. In an executive order that was issued ahead of Independence Day, President Trump also listed Graham among the leaders he'd like to memorialize in a statuary park called the National Garden of American Heroes. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'd like to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Tomorrow, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Michelle, the dad whisperer, so I hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.